Lane. If we haven't met, uh, my name's James Lewis. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, now, if you've been uh, following us in our series in Titus, uh, you might be expecting our senior minister, Pete Stedman, to be uh, preaching tonight. Uh, but Pete uh, fractured his tibia uh, playing soccer yesterday. So he spent uh, last night and most of the day in hospital having all sorts of x-rays and things like that and still working out what they're going to do about it all. Um, so I have his sermon uh, and I'm going to read it. Uh, for us tonight. So a little bit different, uh, but it's a good sermon, so we didn't want to miss out on that, uh, and so I'm going to read it. Uh, but it's a reminder to us, isn't it, that God speaks uh, mostly, primarily, wonderfully through His Word uh, and what He preaches. So uh, uh, let's ask that God will bless us. Well, God, we thank you that as we've just sung, you are good. And we long for you to shape more and more of our lives, to be the fire in our Brothers and sisters, we're in the third week of our four-week series in Titus, which is called Grace Does Good. And what we've been seeing together is that the big idea running through Titus is that when the gospel of the Lord Jesus impacts you, you are forever changed. Jesus changes who you are. Jesus changes how you live. I want to start tonight by taking a step back from the book so far and thinking about what we're seeing from a bit of a distance. Keep in mind what we've already seen. That Crete, where uh, Titus was when Paul wrote this letter to him, Crete is an island of reprobates, of pirates, of robbers and thieves, where truth is a commodity to be traded. And even Crete's own poets say that Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. So to put it frankly, it's one of the most wicked places in the first century. Possibly the hardest place to plant a church. And yet Paul and Titus plant a church here what's going on? Do you see what this tells us about the gospel of the Lord Jesus? There is an embedded assumption in Paul's heart and in this letter that the gospel can change the most depraved of people. This letter is clear evidence that God's church is not intended to merely function and exist in cozy, respectable, middle-class environments. What we see, rather, is that the gospel is for the most unpromising people. For the overbearing, quick tempered, the drunk, the violent, for those who pursue dishonest gains, for liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. The gospel contains evil and So that's the first thing we see from a distance. There is another thing. And it's the general strategy that Paul uses here to see healthy churches flourish. And so far, it's not really that complicated. This is what we've seen over the last few years. Step one, find godly leaders. Step two, constrain, stop ungodly leaders. Step three, put relationships in the church in order. And it's that third step that we're going to look at tonight. Titus 2, we're going to see three things. Firstly, two traps ahead. Secondly, we'll look at the shape of relationships. And then thirdly, we'll finish by considering the power of grace so firstly, two traps ahead. Uh, 
come to instructions in the Bible about how to live, how to act, how to think, we need to be very careful in the way that we talk and think. It's because it's so easy to fall into a couple of different traps. The relationship between belief on the one hand and behavior on the other needs careful and clear thought. The first trap we can fall into is where we think behavior is more important than belief. That what we do is more important than what we believe. This is more commonly known as moralism, religiosity. You see this all the time from the family who come to church just on Good Friday. Why? Well, what we do. It's unhinged from conviction or belief. It's about habit, ritual, culture. We can also see it in our own lives, our own homes. See, what we can do is grow up a whole generation of moralists. Um, if uh, in your family, in your home, these kind of conversations take place, so maybe when you were younger. Mother, did you take that lolly without asking? Child, no. Mother, I saw you. Child, I mean, yes. Mother, so you lied to me. Don't you ever lie to me. Child, why not? Mother, ask your father. That's belief, behavior without belief. It's moralism, it's religiosity. Or think about the way you talk about sex in your home. Maybe the way your parents talk to you about sex. And shape your views around sex. Father, don't have sex until you're married. Teenager, why not? Father, uh, ask your mother. Youth have a growing hungry, rational mind, and to just do that, to do ask your mother, sounds so weak and unsatisfactory, right? It feels so in, inauthentic and all about the outward appearance without any inward conviction. It's moralism. And that's what happens when churches teach behavior change without real deep belief in the God who calls us to live a different life. That's trap one. But there's another trap here, and it's this. It's where belief is more important than behavior. Where what we hold to be true, or at least what we say to be true, is not washed out into our lives. And there is a very well-known word for this, and it is hypocrisy. We've seen this played out recently during the Royal Commission, where people have said, well, the church stands against same-sex marriage because of the impact it has on children, and yet it's the leaders of the church who have been abusing children for years. There are a number of leaks in that argument which kind of render it false. But hear what being said. You hypocrites. You say you believe one thing. You're up there preaching about this and that and the other. But behind closed doors, it does not follow through in your life. You can see how tricky it is, can't you, to speak about and think about the relationship between belief and behavior. And you do understand that both morality and hypocrisy are despised by our world. Our world hates moralism, and fair enough, right? To say, be good for goodness sake, ridiculous. That belongs to songs about Santa more than anything else. But our world also hates hypocrisy, because that belongs to the world of the liar, the cheat, and the wicked. That belongs to the correct where belief does not express itself in consistent behavior. And right it is to hate that as well. You see, 
everyone, whether they're Christian or not, we are all drawn to a consistency between the inner person and the outer person, where our words and our deeds align and match. And the book of Titus holds both of these together for us, both belief and behavior. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 2. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound see what Paul tells Titus he must do. He must teach people to live in a way that aligns with the truth of the gospel. Behavior must mirror belief, or, or more accurately, behavior must flow out of, be constrained, be shaped, be taught by what we hold to be true. And if it doesn't, if it deviates just a fraction, then we will fall into either morality on the one hand or hypocrisy on the other, and the world will and we will make the gospel of the Lord Jesus grimy and unattractive. But when we get it right, the world will notice too. Three times in uh, Titus, Paul tells Titus that when God's people's behavior and belief align together and match together, then their lives commend the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Beautiful. And so it is in verse 5. In an instruction to young women in the church, Paul says, Teach them to live in such a way, in a way they love their husbands and their children, to be in control of themselves, that no one will be able to malign the word of God by saying, they believe this, but they live like that. It's again in verse 7. Paul says, if you as a pastor, Titus, are able to be a man of integrity and wisdom in how you speak, then those who oppose you will be ashamed because their opposition will have no grace. And now look at verse 9. Paul's instruction here is for slaves to live better lives than free people. Better lives than cretins around them. Cretins are always lying. Slaves don't lie. Cretins are lazy gluttons. Slaves, you can be fully gluttons. And when you live this way because of your love for Jesus, every part of your life makes the teaching about God our Behavior and belief have to be always two sides of one thing. When they are, they commend the gospel of belief. When they are not, people see us as moralistic, hypocritical, and they are absolutely right to do. Well, that's our first point. Second point is putting relationships in order. So uh, Crete is a messy island full of messy people and a whole bunch of messy relationships. And that's not too surprising, is it? If piracy and lying and theft and laziness are your currency, it's not like you go home after work and have these wonderful functional family lives of kindness, mercy and grace in the home, right? I mean, your brutishness will follow over everywhere. And so in all the instructions that Paul gives Titus in verses 2 to 10, are all to do with the relationships within the home. And so Paul says to Titus, Titus, you have to teach the church Six times he says to Titus, teach, 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 teach. You know what that means? God's people grow in godliness by teaching. That's not overly profound, is it? I mean, what it means is that you do not become a mature, godly, faithful Christian by men, or by the mere passage of time, or by near attendance at church or just by hanging around with God and people. No, 
you become a godly lover and follower of Jesus, eager to do good with relationships at work by learning God's word, by humbly opening up your ears and your heart and drinking in God's word and his ways and then prayerfully asking for them to take root in your heart and life. And what Titus is to teach in the first instance is the shape of quality relationships for many people. Now, presumably what he teaches here is the exact opposite of what was going on in Crete. Presumably Paul knows about all the dysfunction in the lives of older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and slaves. And then he tells Titus to teach the very things that will address those areas of messy living. Now, I'm not going to walk through all of them, what they do and don't mean. I think they're pretty straightforward and self-explanatory. What I will say is this. Paul believes that God has given us shape to our relationships. A shape to do to what the best kind of relationships will look like in a family and a church. Where older men are to be dignified and mature, worthy of respect, not little boys and big boys' bodies. And that seems to be a big problem in our culture where men don't really grow up and mature, still stay boys. A church where older women are to be godly and reverent teachers of younger women. Older women are to deliberately seek out younger women to pass on what it means to be a godly Christian wife or a godly single woman or a godly mother. That's in verse 3. Where younger women are to be good wives and mothers who use their time and their lives well. That's verse 4. Where young, younger men are to be self-controlled. And that's it for them. It seems to be enough. <laughs> if you get that right, just be self-controlled, then that will lead to a godly home. No, there's no sense here of Paul saying, oh, the boys are just good. And, and we will not treat in this church younger men like you are kids, boys. But we call and expect, and it's right to expect, that young, be, young men be full of character and control. That's verse 6. And a church where your elders are to be good teachers and great models. That's verse 7 and 8. And where slaves are to be conscientious and honest. That's verses 9 and 10. So, so you know what all that is we've just gone through? That is a stunning picture of a functional, sacrificial, intergenerational, godly community. Can you imagine a community that lives like that? What an impact, right? So counterculture. Can you imagine now a community that lives like that in Baltimore? Where fights over rights and gender roles and personal individual freedom gave way to a deeper desire to honour God's word and to live lives that actively look to build others up first. It's called the church. Where grace does good. That's our second point. And then thirdly and finally, uh, Paul here in Titus points us to the power of grace and grace. Because you know, our series has been called Grace Does Good, and so in this passage we come to the point in the letter that explains how grace does good. How is it that God's grace to us changes? How does God's grace make us live good in life? That's verses 11 14. So verse 11 we read, have a look there, 
for the grace of God has appeared. That is speaking about one thing only. A person. Speaking about the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. All he was, all he said, all he did. And what we see here is that there is something in his appearance, in his coming into our world, in his life and in his death and in his resurrection that Paul describes as grace. What is that? Was described in verse 14. Jesus Christ gave himself for us. He offered up his life for yours to purchase you back from slavery and to free you from the tyranny of sin. But not only did he rescue you, he then rebuilt you. He gave you his own perfection. He made you part of his family. What this means, and, and this is amazing when you get this, that when God looks at you, this is what he says. He doesn't see someone who used to be a sinner, but isn't a sinner now. That's way too negative. God looks at you and sees Jesus. Jesus' perfect life, God now sees as yours. Jesus' kindness, God now sees as yours. Jesus' obedience to all his Father asks, God now sees as yours. And the sum total of what you bring to that equation, the total amount of what you have done to deserve that from God is zero. Nothing. A big fat goose. You did absolutely nothing to deserve that, warrant that, earn that, or keep that. But you have been given. And the Bible calls that So when you know that that has happened to you, undeserved and free, you are changed to want to live like Jesus. You start to do good. You, you just can't help it because you want to be like Jesus. And that grace, Jesus, changes us. Verse 12 tells us that our lives change because we have changed because our God has changed. Our God is no longer ourselves, our desires and lusts and idols that we chase, but our God is Jesus himself. And so we start to live like him. We say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and we start to live lives that are sober and in control. We're no longer driven by fear or passion or jealousy, by hope. And this is, this is good. Because in verse 11, we've heard about grace appearing in Jesus. But now look at verse 13. Something else will appear in Jesus. Glory. If grace appeared in Jesus in the past, then there is another appearing in the future that will come. And God's people wait for that. It is the glory of the Lord Jesus. When he returns, and when every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that he is the Lord, the King, the Ruler, the Saviour of the world, means we are a people shaped by grace and looking for glory. And in between the first appearing of Jesus and the second, we live like him. We do good. That will impact people around us. So Chapel Lane, does grace do good in your life? Would you like it? Today when you came in, you were given, or on your chair, there was a flyer, like that. 
the reason we've given you this today is because as a staff team, we want to pray for everyone that the grace of God would do good in our lives and that we would long to do good in our lives. Never in an attempt to earn God's love or keep God's love or make sure of God's love. No, no. Always in response to God's love. We already have all of God's attention and affection in Christ. We don't need to do anything. But we are like a child who clumsily makes their parents breakfast in bed. Remember doing that? For the sheer joy of delighting us. So we do good in the world. For it is who Jesus has made us to be and it's what Jesus has made us to do. Yes, like the child making breakfast for mum and dad, we may make a mess. We've done this. You might spill milk on the tuna and drop one of the pieces of toast down the chest parents love it when you do because they know you love it and you want to show that love even if it is a bit messy and so does our good and gracious God in love he loves it so what we're going to do in a minute is uh, take a couple of minutes we're going to all do this write something down write down an area where you want grace to do good in your life so it might be that that's the way that you are parenting or you'd like to parent in the future, that your kids would see just how much Jesus means to them. Or it might be the way you're looking to serve those around you who are going through a, a tougher time than you are. Or it might be spending time with that person at school or at work or at uni who just seems so undeserving of your time or anyone's time. How can grace do good in your life? And this week, Every single day, our staff will be praying for everyone. This is anonymous, but our God knows who we are. And our God longs for us to do good as His grace spills over and up and out of our hearts and out of our lives and impacts those around us. So the card says, I'd love for grace to do good in my life in this way. And all you need to do is write down how you'd like Jesus' grace to you to spill out and over. So I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to do that now. As I said, we'll be praying for every one of you this week, and you can put those cards in the box that's just on that table here in the back door. out later. Just take a couple of minutes to write them. Uh, finish up. In 1743, when Robert Robinson was just eight years old, he lost his father. Angry, bitter, and fatherless, Robert rebelled in excess in his teenage years, drinking, gambling, and causing trouble. He was a cretin, just living in England. But God broke into his heart through the gospel preaching of George Whitfield. Several years later, he followed the Lord into ministry and was later inspired to write these words. O the grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that goodness, like a fetter, Find my wandering heart to thee. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Clothed then in blood washed linen, 